We turn to 1 2 Samuel chapter 24. 2 Samuel 24. The whole of the passage serves as our text. And again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go number Israel and Judah. For the king said to Joab, the captain of the host, which was with him, Go now through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, and number ye the people, that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said unto the king, now the Lord thy God add unto the people how many soever they be in hundredfold, and that the eye of my Lord the king may see it. But why doth my Lord the king delight in this thing? Notwithstanding, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the host. And Joab and the captains of the host went out from the presence of the Lord of the king to number the people of Israel. And they passed over Jordan and pitched in Aurora on the right side of the city that lieth in the midst of the river Gad and towards Jazer. And they came to Gilead and to the land of Tatim Hadshi. And they came to Danjean and about to Zidon. And came to the stronghold of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and of the Canaanites. And they went out to the south of Judah even to Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. And Joab gave up the sum of the number of the people under the king. And there were in Israel 800,000 valiant men that drew the sword, and the men of Judah were 500,000 men. And David's heart smote him after that he had numbered the people. And David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in that I have done, and now I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolish, foolishly. For when David was up in the morning, the word of the Lord came unto the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and say unto David, Thus saith the Lord, I offer thee three things. Choose thee one of them, that I may do it unto thee. So Gad came to David and told him and said unto him, Shall seven years of famine come unto thee in thy land? Or wilt thou flee three months before thine enemies while they pursue thee? Or that there be three days pestilence in thy land? Now advise, and see what answer I shall return to him that sent me. And David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. Let us fall now into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great. And let me not fall into the hand of man. The Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning even to the time appointed. And there died of the people from Dan even to Beersheba 70,000 men. And when the angel stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord repented him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed the people, It is enough. Stay now thine hand. And the Lord and the angel Lord by the thresh stood was by the threshing place of Arauna the Jebusite. And David spake unto the Lord when he saw the angel that smote the people and said, Lo, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but the sheep what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, be against me and be against my father's house. And 
and Gad came that day to David and said unto him, Go up, rear an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Arauna the Jebusite. And David, according to the saying of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. And Arauna looked and saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Arauna went out and bowed himself before the king on his face upon the ground. And Arauna said, Wherefore is my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor of thee, to build an altar unto the Lord, that the plague may be stayed from the people. And Arauna said unto David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seemeth good unto him. Behold, here be oxen for burnt sacrifice, and threshing instruments, and other instruments of the oxen for wood. All these things did Arauna as a king give unto the king. And Arauna said unto the king, The Lord thy God accept thee. And the king said to Arauna, Nay, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price, neither will I offer burnt offerings unto the Lord my God of that which doth cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for fifty shekels of silver. And David built there an altar unto the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord was entreated for the land, and the plague was stayed from Israel. The whole of the passage, as I have stated, first or second Samuel 24 serves as the text. A history of sin and grace. And a sin that was a very serious sin so much that it warranted penalty and even correction after there was confession and repentance. At the same time, of course, what's magnified in the passage is God's mercy. So that there came a point in his pouring out of a wrath upon his people. He said, it is enough. As if it were a father who said, I can't go on in this manner any longer. And that has everything to do, beloved, with the heart of God as a father which is filled with a unfathomable mercy towards an unworthy people. But it was a wrath that God displayed because of the sin of David, which our text says in some ways ties in with sins of Israel that angered the Lord as well. But with respect to David, you see, he was susceptible to this sin because in his life there was a spiritual drought. He wasn't seeking the Lord as he ought to have been seeking the Lord. Maybe going through the motions, sitting in church, and now I've done my duty but it hadn't really stirred him up unto seeking the Lord with a 
sincerity and spiritual droughts, beloved, make us wide open to temptation. We are susceptible. Indeed, so it was with David, a spiritual drought in his life, and the question is, what about you? And what about me? Because being susceptible to temptation, we may fall. And when the fall comes consequences, and sometimes not simply to ourselves, but to others, as is plain here from the passage as well. So a historical passage, but filled with lessons from history, and we want to draw those lessons out for ourselves as we examine this passage that has so much to do with sin and grace. And the in grace triumphing, and in God's mercy, a sinful king, but also a people spared. David's numbering the people, a foolish numbering, having severe consequences, and yet spared by a wonderful and wondrous mercy by a God of a wondrous mercy. It is not without significance that David falls prey to this sin towards the end of his life. Probably less than even a year before he dies. Say that because it's towards the end, of course, the conclusion of 2 Samuel. And then when you turn the page and read 1 Kings, now David was old and stricken in years, and they covered him with clothes, but he got no heat. When he falls prey to this temptation to number the people, he is becoming feeble. Age has caught up with him. And this is the king, remember, who had led... Israel, from victory to victory, he was a man of prowess and a man of energy. And as a general, would came to do battles fearless, and he had victories. He was the champion of the people as he led God's host during the time of his monarchy. And now he's old and feeble. And he knows he is soon going to depart the scene. And the question arises, Lord, who shall lead our host? I have a son, Solomon, and he's an extremely gifted young man, but he's not a warrior. When I grew up as a lad, I withstood lions and bears and protected sheep. I lived in an agricultural world and knew what it meant to do physical labor and so on, but not my son Solomon. He's been raised in a court and been highly educated and has a lot of wisdom, but he's not a man who's going to wield the sword very effectively. So, Lord, who shall lead our host? And it would be one thing, you know, 
if he concluded, thy aid we covet most. But that's not the conclusion to which David came at this point. Because, Lord, if I'm taken from the scene, who then will take care of thy Israel if I'm no more available? You see the temptation? I'm indispensable. Who can replace me, Lord? And the devil was there. It's interesting, you know, that we read in our passage, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he moved David against them to save. But if you go to the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, we read, And Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. So our passage says Jehovah God moved him. And the parallel passage of Second Chroni First, First Chronicles says Satan provoked David. So which is it? I bring this up because we live in a day and age when the enemies of the church are from within the church and you have men of learning and stature who want to justify their own lack of faith and they do that by finding what they call discrepancies in the holy scripture so that yes the bible in the bible you can find the word of god the word of god is in the bible but it's not necessarily the word of god chapter by chapter and phrase by phrase because there's evidences that there are discrepancies in the scriptures and if you will contradictions and here you have a chapter where it shows up a number of times and we'll touch on a couple of those, a few as we go but here's here's the first instance in one view of the scriptures one set of writers or one writer said god moved david but here it says satan provoked David. And so you have this discrepancy, this contradiction proving that scriptures can't be infallible. There are differences of views, men's fallible interpretations and views also are to be found. And then you can finally apply them even to morality and immorality, you know, if you go long enough. They're trying to find room for that. Well, beloved, I'm not going to go into all that what's called higher criticism and the assault from within the church against the integrity of the Holy Scriptures. I simply want to point out that, as you well know, there's no discrepancy here. This can be easily resolved. We can say both. Certainly it's true that one can say God, God, God moved David. And then you can also say in another, another instance that Satan provoked a man. We, we make the petition, lead us not into temptation, don't we? But deliver us from evil. It's a prayer to God. God lead us not into temptation. Does God ever tempt? God never tempts a man. And yet we read, lead us not into temptation. Why do we pray, Why do we pray that? Because there are times... In our own life, we know that we are susceptible to temptation, and we know that if we fall into temptation, we may pursue a certain way, and if we pursue a certain way under the power of sin, God may give one over 
precipice in, and one may have deep and lamentable falls and even pursue that for some time and suffer lamentable consequences because one has not confessed the sin and turned from the sin and set set it aside. And so God gives one over to temptation, and whom does the Lord use? He uses the evil one, doesn't he? And Satan is there, and he will provoke one unto further sin because we are so susceptible, so vulnerable in our pursuit of some particular sin or immorality. So God is involved, but he uses, of course, Satan. Satan is always, must, can do that only with his permission and according to his will. So it's not a contradiction. It's in keeping with the very petition that we pray so regularly, daily. <laughs> Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. When we are faced with the evil, if we commit the sin, we repent and we turn from it rather than pursuing it and then are over taken by it, and who knows what consequences and evil follows. But just to remind ourselves, beloved, that when there are spiritual droughts in our life, and we are simply going through the motions of prayer morning by morning, we've done our duty and on we go without really much thought and much earnestness of of seeking. Satan's devils are there. They're watching. And when we become spiritually careless, if you will, it's like the sharks. They're like sharks in the atmosphere, that, and there's blood in the water. And they smell the blood in the water, and they pounce, and they take advantage of us and overpower And who knows what sins follow as a result. And so this warning, beloved, to be seeking God day by day in an earnestness and praying that prayer, give us not over to temptation, but give us the grace, Father, to withstand temptation, lest who knows what other evils may follow. So, beloved, the lesson from history. That said... Understand here that there is a, a lesson that the Lord is bringing home. It's interesting that our text reads, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. There was something wrong with Israel at this moment. And not only with Israel, there was something wrong with David as well, that he could be used as the instrument of this, uh, of this evil that came upon Israel, the and, and it's an evil, you understand, sins that the Lord is going to address himself to. There's a spiritual deficit, deficiency in Israel as a nation, and that must be addressed. And beloved, that spiritual deficiency at this time was a confidence in self, if you will. A confidence in self because they were the power of that area, kind of the world power of that area at that time. And during the reign of David, they had gone from victory unto victory. There was no army in that whole area that could withstand them. They were 
champions of the world. And they could boast themselves of that, don't you see? They had a rather high opinion of themselves. Now, who in the world can contest with us? Who dares to challenge us? Because if any dares to challenge us, they will suffer ignominious defeat. That had become, you see, their attitude. It was quite a change, you know, from the beginning of David's reign. We're in 2 Samuel, the concluding chapter. You know how 2 Samuel opens, if you recall. It opens by the death of Saul and the death of Jonathan and Israel scattered like so many sheep across a thousand hills by the Philistines, having suffered ignominious defeat again at the hand of the Philistines and men hiding in caves and so on and fearful for their lives. That's how David's history began. And you go back to the days of the judges and you have a judge named Deborah because you couldn't find a man in Israel who had the backbone and the courage to lead an army against the Canaanites. And he, when Barak did, he said, I, I need that woman with me if I'm going to have the necessary courage to withstand and face the enemy. And then there was a man named Samson in the days of the judges. He fought all alone. Wonderful for Samson, but why all alone? Because he couldn't get anybody to follow him. That's why he was all alone. We're right behind you, Samson. A hundred, hundred steps. You take care of them. And if you take care of them, we'll share in the spoils. But don't expect us to go with you and put our lives on the at risk, take care of them, Samson, we're right behind you. And when you have a victory, we'll cheer. And then when they were threatened, what they do? They bound him hand and foot and tried to deliver him over to the Philistines. That was the courage of Israel during the time of Samson. He was compelled to fight all alone. And one more instance. A giant named Goliath, defying the armies of Israel, and they were quaking in their boots until a stripling lad came along and said, you're going to allow this loud mouth to defy the God of Israel? I'll go fight him. And he went with a slingshot, didn't he? And the Lord used that stripling David, maybe at the age of 13 or 14, 15, to bring down the giant Goliath. But that was Israel back then, suffering defeat after defeat. But now, it's a different matter here at the close of Israel, of David's kingship. They are, as I have said, the champions of the world. And they are fearful of no one. In fact, what's interesting is in that parallel passage in First Chronicles, we read 21, but Chronicles 20 ends with some of the relatives of, of David, Ethan, and so on, who have gone against the various giants who are the brothers of and related to, to Goliath. The brother of Goliath is slain by a, Gitt a Gittite, and there was war in Gath, and a man defied Israel, and Jonathan, the son of Shimea, David's brother, slew him. So they were willing to take anybody on. They were fearful of no one. Heady stuff, beloved. We are the champions of the world. We are number one. 
Shiraz, all you Canaanites and Hittites. Full of itself, you see. And about that time, ready for a lamentable fall, because that's when it can occur, beloved, even with ourselves. We consider our own orthodoxy, and we may be thankful for our orthodoxy, but sometimes, you know, gratitude for orthodoxy can turn into a boasting of orthodoxy. We are the most orthodox of denominations in, in the world. We can get into theological debates with anyone and slay them hip and thigh. Wonderful, beloved. We are strong in orthodoxy. But now the question, how are we living? Are we living in a godly, pious, humble, devotional way? Or wearing the cloak of our orthodoxy, are we going in the way of a spiritual drought? Because the love for all one's orthodoxy, if one is living in a spiritual drought and not pursuing the ways of God and living in according to the words of God, there's going to be issues. There's going to be defeats. There's going to be lamentable falls, is it not so? wonderful to be thankful for orthodoxy. It's another thing to boast oneself in orthodoxy as though all the others have faults and flaws, but our warts and so on are not to be found. Oh no, we better look ourselves as well with self-examination and to what we are called in our dependency upon God for all of our orthodoxy. And so these two, beloved, must be addressed, and the Lord has a way of addressing that from time to time, does he not? And then there's David, and there's a certain pride to David, and I have already indicated to some extent what that was. In a way, you would say he was fearful, he was anxious, he was old, he was becoming feeble, and Lord, who's going to lead our host? But in that question, in his doubts and fears and anxious cares about Israel's future, there's this pride, Lord, I'm not going to be available anymore. And if I'm not available, who's going to do it? Because I'm almost indispensable, am I not, Lord? So what's the remedy? Let's start numbering the people. And the point and view, the point of the of the census, beloved, is not simply to find out how many people are in Israel. He's interested, as the passage makes plain, in how many young men there are to bear the sword from probably the age of 18 to maybe 40 years of age who are fit for war. And Lord, if we can have enough number of men and have that human resource, then I can rest in peace. Then we may be strong enough and powerful, even when I'm gone, to withstand the enemy and we'll have safety and security and be saved. David, 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 you really think you are indispensable and that all those victories that Israel experienced under your kingship and your generalship are due to you and your prowess, but that's the direction you see he is going, and there 
in lies his weakness and his sin. And so he is provoked now, tempted by, given over to the, the sin and his own pride of his own indispensability as though I am the one who led Israel's host and I deserve a kind of commendation and gratitude of the, of the nation. And Satan provokes David to number Israel and God gives Satan the permission to do so when there is this lamentable fall. It's interesting that he is rebuked by Joab, the captain of the, of the host, when he says to Joab, go out and number the, the people. Joab, of course, is his nephew. He's the eldest son of Zeruiah, David's sister, which is why he's the general. And Joab says, the Lord thy God add to the people how many soever he wants to. Whatever the number is, it is. We can't change that. Just let it be, David, because I don't see any good coming, coming from this. It's not going to change one thing. What's interesting, of course, there is that in many ways, Joab was really unspiritual. You don't, you read the history when Joab's involved and you're not struck by his spirituality. There's even question whether or not he's saved. You know how he ended his life, of course. He's executed by Solomon at David's decree because of two men whom Joab slew who were his competitors. So is this man even spiritual? But this man who's not very spiritual rebukes David. And that can happen, you know. Somebody from the world can view us as we are, are walking and living and says, aren't you a churchgoer? Aren't you a Christian? Boy, your language sure doesn't show it. Sound pretty much just like all the rest of us with your vulgarity and your profanity. Or, aren't you a churchgoer? Don't you go to such and such a church? You sure like the you sure like the drink. Maybe you ought to back off it, you think? Or don't you ever have any time for your family? It's just work, work, work. What about your family? And when even the world brings that to our attention, it's time to perk up one's ears and pay attention. Maybe I've forgotten my priorities. Hear the rebuke of the unspiritual and, and uh, start purifying one's life by, by prayer and contemplation. But here is Joab with the captains, we're told, to try to dissuade King David. And David says, as it were, I don't care how old I am and how feeble I am. I'm king, and you will do as I say. Go and number the people. What do you think? I've abdicated the throne? I rule. Do what I say. And they do. And they go out and number the people. And, and the role and the tally rolls in. And it's a rather impressive tally. So that as you number the people and those who could wield the sword finally between a certain age and can be drafted, they number finally over a million. And Job comes with the sum total and I says, says, here you are my king, my uncle. I hope you're happy with the results. I hope now you can rest in peace and if you think this is going to guarantee our safety and security and victories, well, so be it. The deed is done. And so the number is taken 
and the census is set. But as we read, as David receives this information, he realizes what he has done is foolishness. Verse 10, and David's heart smote him after that he had numbered the people. And David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in that I have done. I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. But the indication is that he makes that confession after the prophet Gad comes to him the next morning. He receives this information, say, in the afternoon of one day, and he sleeps on it. And then when the morning comes, the prophet Gad comes to him, because we read in verse 11, For when David was up in the morning, the word of the Lord came unto him from the prophet Gad, David seer, saying, and Gad presents him with the seriousness of what he has done and the consequences that he must choose. And as David hears these words, he realizes full well what I have done. What have I done? What have I done? What have I done? And it's as though the prophet says, I'll tell you what you have done. You have sent a message to the nation that as long as we have enough human resources, be it in money, bank accounts, or in men, manpower, we can have victory and we can be a force to be reckoned with as long as we have enough human resources and we have a lot of human resources the census tells us and now the nation has been told if we have enough human resources we could even ignore God's word and shoot holes in God's word and set apart the parts of God's word we really aren't comfortable with and don't like and still be a force to be reckoned with <coughs> we're safe we're secure is that true beloved that a church can set aside the fullness of God's word, ignore this part of it, ignore that part of it, shoot holes through that part of it, and as long as it has enough human resources and finances and manpower, it can be a force to be reckoned with. Yeah, that's true. A church, a denomination, can set aside God's word shoot holes through it, exalt the words of men, and if she has enough human resources, be a force to be reckoned with. Ever hear of Rome? Rome is a force to be reckoned with. She has been for centuries. You don't mess too much with the Pope and all of the Roman Catholics around the world because politicians know if the Pope starts marshalling his troops and withholding funds, things could happen in one's own nation. One can be a force to be reckoned with, but beloved, in spiritual affairs, that's the question, isn't it? You can be a force to be reckoned with in politics, in society, but what about the Lord's victories? What about the advancement of the Lord's cause? What about the preaching of the gospel and the defeat of Satan's forces and the holding of truth and the exposing of error? That's another question. And then it doesn't matter how many human resources you have, be it in finances or in manpower, if you have taken God's word and begun to dispense with the inspiration and the infallibility and the authority of God's word in all matters, one will not be 
a spiritual force to be reckoned with. In the end, one will be used by the evil one himself for the displacing of, of lives and troubles here, there, and everywhere. That's, beloved, what the church had better hear and know and understand because if one is living in accordance with God's word and trusting in God's word, one may have few human resources, be rather small like the band of Gideon and still be used by the Lord in a powerful way in the spiritual arena unto the salvation of those whom God so loves and the defeat of any number of Satan's forces and devices. And let us pay heed to that and lay that to heart. And so the lesson beloved here brought home and in a very vivid way what is the consequences of this dependency upon self and this vaunting of self and a failure to reckon with the Lord's power and simply to put one's trust in him and his word and to do what's required regardless of whether you and I at the moment see the wisdom of it or not. Who shall lead our host indeed? And the prophet says, you have sent a message, all right, David, but it's a lamentable message about human resources being the salvation of a church and of a nation without regard even to God's word. You can lay it aside, as it were, and still have safety and security. Well, you may, but not under the protection and the blessing of God. And so he says, this, this is the consequences of your folly. David has repented. He confesses, and the Lord hears that, beloved, and there is forgiveness. But what's interesting is, even though he is forgiven because the sin is that serious, there is still consequence in life for himself and for the nation, which can happen, of course. Sin confessed, and the Lord forgives the sin that is of such a nature that others are affected in a very adverse way. God keep us from such sins that always keep us in the way of this repentance and this confession. And he gives them the choice, three things. Now, what's interesting here is that in our chapter, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 24, Gad says, shall seven years of famine come unto thee, and then three months of, of, of defeat by the enemy, and, or three days of pestilence. If you turn to the parallel passage in First, First Chronicles, then what you read is this, the prophet says, three years of famine, not seven years of famine, but three years of famine. Aha, another discrepancy, another contradiction. And again, there's an explanation. Remember that we don't have the autographa, we don't have the original writings of the scriptures. There were those who had to copy down the scriptures, and our translation comes one of the copies of the scriptures. Who knows how many copies down? And there were a few instances in the Old Testament where it's apparent that someone who copied made a mistake. And here's one of those instances where one of the scribes wrote down either seven when he should have written three or three when he should have written seven. Probably, beloved, probably three, three, and three. So that what you find in First First Samuel chapter 24 would have been the error of a copyist. And it's allowed to stand because 
the integrity of the, of the copies themselves, but it's easily explained. Someone made a mistake in copying. The New Testament has the same thing. And then you put together the, the parchments, what you have, and you have the majority text, which shows you basically what was the original. So, so here, so it's allowed to stand, but probably three years of, of famine and three years, three months of pursue, being pursued by the enemy or three days of pestilence. And David looks over the options and he says, we will fall into the hands of the Lord, let it be the three days of pestilence. And the Lord does so. We will fall into the hands of the Lord for his mercies are great. And the Lord sent a pestilence upon Israel from the morning even to the time appointed. And this was a pestilence against which the COVID, of course, disease simply pales in comparison because this, this ran like the, the wind, carried by the wind, it seemed, and they died by the thousands and the tens of thousands in the space of, of three days. It says 70,000 men, whether that means people or men plus women and children, we don't know, but tens of thousands have died in the space of just hours and days. And then we read that the angel of the Lord stands over Jerusalem itself. He rears, he rears up over Jerusalem. When the angel stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord repented him of evil. That's verse 16. This is the angel of death. This is the same angel undoubtedly that passed over, Israel, over Egypt when there was blood on the doorpost and this angel of death spared, you see, spared God's Israel because the blood was on the doorpost and he smote the enemy and the firstborn of the enemy. Here the same angel is required. Now don't simply strike and destroy the enemies of God's Israel. You must even take that sword of death and strike some of God's people. It wasn't just the carnal who died, beloved. There were people of God, the spiritual died, and probably even mothers and children, and the cry went up. It was a severe, severe disease without, it seemed, a discrimination. And without a doubt, the angel did that with a grief in his heart. But the Lord has required it, and so this I must do. And don't think, beloved, angels don't have emotions as they deal with the people of God and are his instruments. All you have to do is read the Old Testament on the New Testament and the gospel goes forth. And what do we read? That the angels rejoice when one sinner repents because that's the victory of their king, you see, King Jesus, over the one who is their great enemy, how they hate Satan, the fallen, the fallen angel, the devil, and his host. They have withstood him, and they rejoice when a child... Son of a son of God that is uh, elect is set free and saved. They there's happiness, and they grieve over lamentable things that happen in the church as well. And here's this angel, and he must strike even some of God's people. He does it under command, but with a grief. And David lifts up his eyes as the cry goes up from Jerusalem, and cries unto the Lord and says, "I have sinned. I have done wickedly." The sheep, what have they done? Let thine hand, I pray thee, be against me and against my father's house. You see here, Christ is coming through David, isn't he? Here's David the type. Here's the shepherd of the sheep. He has repented of his sin, of his evil, what he has done.
and he sees the consequences of his own sin upon the people whom he loves, God's people. And he prays like Moses of old, Lord, if it is necessary, blot me out of thy book. I, the one who have sinned, what have they done? Be it against me, against my father's house, blot us out, but spare thy people, Lord. The intercessor, the mediator, prays unto God. But this we must understand, beloved, that God's mercy is shown to Israel before David pleads as intercessor. The angel stretched out his hand upon Jerusalem, and the Lord repented him of the evil. David's intercession comes in verse 17. The phrase, the Lord repented him of the evil, comes in verse 16. And the Lord repents him of the evil and says to the angel that was destroying the people, it is enough. This is a tremendous, wonderful revelation, beloved, of the mercy of God's heart as the Father God. This mercy, beloved, does not depend on David's intercession. He does not display this mercy and say it's enough because David has interceded. This mercy, beloved, is displayed prior to David's intercession and not because of David's intercession, but only because God has this mercy within himself, you see, and that's David's only hope, and that's Israel's only hope, and that's our only hope. That God sees the consequences of our sins, and we cry, and it touches his heart. And he doesn't slay us out of hand, but spares us anyway in his mercy. That's even true with respect to Christ. Isn't it true? God doesn't have mercy on us because of Christ. His sparing us in the end doesn't simply depend upon the work of Christ. Beloved, God sent Christ because he had mercy. Christ is the display of God's mercy. God doesn't wait until Christ does his work and then have mercy. Christ would have never come if God didn't have mercy. In his mercy, God sends his son and says, I will not destroy my people. I will spare my people, and I will do it by sending my son to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. That's the heart of God, don't you see? He repents himself of this wrath, we read. Repents him of the evil, that is, of the disease that's falling, this judgment that's falling in a, upon his upon his people. He says, it is enough. Repentance, beloved, you ask, what, what does it mean that God repents? Well, what is a man's repentance? This is parallel. They're not a nickel, but it's a parallel. When we repent, it's because something has touched our heart and grieved us. We see something and it grieves us. It touches our heart. Sin, it grieves us. And then we stop doing what we have been doing. If we keep doing it, we're not repentant, are we? One is grieved by one's sin. One is resolved, resolved to cease pursuing that way and to seek 
the way of salvation. Isn't that repentance? Now apply that to God. There is something that touches his heart and grieves him. Not sin, but the cry, the suffering of his people. It touches his heart as a father's heart. And he ceased doing what he was doing, punishing in the way of destruction. And instead, I will seek the way of salvation for this people. That's his repentance, don't you see? The cry that goes up from a people like Adam and Eve and the children of Adam and Eve for their folly touches his father's heart. These are my children elect. From a certain point of view, I see them in Christ. I've elected them in Christ, and I will not destroy them. I will deliver them from death. I will seek their salvation, and I will do that in my mercy by sending the only begotten to do for you, to do for us, to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. This great mercy of God. That mercy of God, you know, is underscored in the parallel passage. You go to the parallel passage, First Chronicles chapter 21, and you read there that in verse 18, no, verse 15, first of all, and, Dave, and God sent an angel unto Jerusalem to destroy it. That was the command to the angel, destroy it. He would only cease when God said, it's enough, stop. And as he was destroying, the Lord beheld and he repented him of the evil and said to the angel that destroyed, it is enough, stay thine hand. And the angel Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. He stood with the sword in his hand, but he did not smite anymore. He stopped. The sword is out. It's unsheathed. And David lifts up his eyes and sees the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with a drawn sword reaching out over, stretched out over Jerusalem, and then clothed in sackcloth, he makes this confession. I have sinned and done this evil, O Lord. But this angel has already ceased his smiting. And then the Lord says, go to the threshing floor of Arauna. But now what's interesting is that you read concerning there, concerning this Arauna, that they hid themselves amongst the instruments of, of the threshing floor. You read that he with his four sons, in verse 20, he saw the angel and his four sons with him, and they hid themselves. He reared up right over their threshing floor, you see, this angel. And Arauna and his sons, maybe from the age of 5 to 15, looked up, and they saw this immense angel, and they cowered in fear and with dread, and they tried to hide themselves from the wrath of God. And it says, oh, God looks down, and he sees the eyes of these little ones whom he loved. Staring up him with a terror. And he says, I can't go on. These are my little ones. I love them. And they're terrified of me and my wrath. It's enough. Cease thy hand. And the angel ceases. But now the sin, you see, the sin must be taken care of. And so 
David is sent to the threshing floor of Arauna. Now, notice the name is Arauna there rather than Ornan, I said. Ornan rather than Arauna. Again, not a contradiction. In the Hebrew, all you have are consonants. That's part of the difficulty of reading Hebrew. You don't have vowels. You're expected to apply the vowels. Now they have new copies that they apply the vowels, but there were those who translated from the Hebrew, Samuel and Kings, and another group who, sat, who, 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 um, tra- who decided to um, translate First Chronicles. And some translated it Arauna, and some translated Ornan, but the consonants are the same in the Hebrew in both passages. There's no contradiction. They're the same name from all intents and purposes. But it's this, this threshing floor of Arauna, and he goes to build there an altar unto the Lord to make this sacrifice. And you read that he comes to Arauna, and he's going to pay him 50 shekels of silver. Says, I need your oxen, I need your threshing instruments to make here an altar of burnt offering to make intercession and a sacrifice. And Arauna says, my king, all that I have is yours. And the king says, no, this must cost me something. I'm not taking it from you for nothing. I'm the one who sinned. I will pay you for it. And he gives him 50 shekels for the oxen and the instruments of the threshing floor. Now, you read in the parallel passage that he paid 600 shekels of silver. And another contradiction, no, because he makes two purchases. First, he purchases just the oxen and the instruments of the threshing floor for which to make a sacrifice. And then after that, he buys the whole of the property so that it becomes his property. And on this property, beloved, will be built the temple of Jehovah God, Solomon's temple. That's what we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 3. Solomon began to build the house of the Lord at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord appeared to David his father in the place that David had repaired in the threshing floor of around the Jebusite, you see. This becomes the place where the temple is built and the altar of burnt offering is set and there is a continual sacrifice made for the God's Israel day and night until Christ will come at last, the great sacrifice. And so David there purchases the oxen, purchases the threshing instruments, makes the sacrifice. And what we read in Second and First Chronicles is that when he does this, the Lord commands the angel, and he puts up his sword again to the sheath thereof, and he vanishes. The sacrifice is made, the blood of atonement, the lamb without blemish represented, and the angel of death takes the sword, and he puts it into his sheath, and he sighs. The price has been paid, the sins atoned for, I need not slay God's people anymore. And he vanishes. And the people are spared, beloved. And I remind you of one more thing. This is Mount Moriah. Who attempted to sacrifice a son on Mount Moriah? 
Hundreds and hundreds of years prior, Father Abraham was sent to Mount Moriah, this very same hill, beloved. Father, we have the fire, we have the wood. Where is the sacrifice? The Lord will provide. And they go to Mount Moriah, and he takes Isaac and puts him on the altar and raises his knife to do what God requires. And God says, Abraham, cease, it's enough. Your faith is apparent in whom you love more, even me than your own son. I will provide, and he finds a ram in the thickets, doesn't he? And Isaac is spared, representing even Israel being spared, and us being spared. But beloved, consider this, and at what price? When God looked down upon the family of Arauna, and he heard the cry from Jerusalem and its spiritual inhabitants, he said, it's enough, I can't go on. Now go to the cross. And his fist begins to fall upon his son for our sins and his wrath. And his son cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken? And he doesn't cease. He doesn't say it's enough. He continues for three dreadful hours, beloved, for our sake. That's the gospel. That's the astonishment. For our sakes, God would not cease beating his son, pouring out his wrath, until the last of the guilt and the sin was paid for. And only then would he put the sword into the sheath and say, it's enough, not because... He's done, that is, with his wrath as such, because the sentence has been served. And now it's enough, and my people are spared, and the sins are paid for, and they have the right to the inheritance. Beloved, behold your God. Who shall lead our host? His aid we covet most. And as we trust in him, be we few, be we many. Victories are had, are they not, of the gospel? And he saves his own. Because, in the end, we have the greater one than David, don't we? Christ Jesus, who is the champion and who gives us the victories. And with the victories, an everlasting inheritance. Amen. Father, we thank thee for thy word, for the gospel, the one whom thou sent, that we as sinners might be saved. <coughs> forgiven, have safety and security, and share in the victories of thy Son. May we live by faith and trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. In Jesus' name, amen.